Is that on? Over the last nine weeks, we've been looking at our, our mission statements, our, our three M's, uh, meet God, meet friends, and make a difference. And it's been really good to kind of outline just different parts of, of that mission statement and, and unpack it a little bit to talk about our values and what we want to be. And, uh, and so we looked um, at the meet God, we looked at the Trinitarian, we looked at worship, we've continued on, we looked at making friends, we talked about uh, having integrity, being open and honest, and we talked about making a difference, and Lisa spoke last week about the gospel, and the previous week we're talking about kingdom um, involved in things like CAP and Job Club, things like that that make a difference. Um, something which we've been really aware of over the past, particularly the past couple of years, um, that it's kind of obvious, it's one of those things that you kind of know, but actually it's good to say it sometimes. And it's simply this, God is at work. Mm, we are so polite, aren't we? God is at work. Mm, yes, I think he might be. God is at work. He's at work. He is about his business. We've been noticing that over the past while. That God, unprecedentedly, probably in a lot of our experiences, is at work in a way that we've not seen in a, in a long way. Certainly in this area, certainly in this town, maybe even in this church, we've seen God at work. We've seen people coming to know him, lives transformed. It's been awesome. God is at work. Yeah. Hallelujah. It's not just here. We've also been gathering uh, gathering, <laughs> gathering momentum. Our friend Roger Sutton, who was minister at Altrincham, is now working for the Evangelical Alliance and gathering um, churches and, and faith communities that are actually making a difference for God's kingdom. And he's got loads of their stories in this book. If you haven't had a chance to read it, we mentioned it before. Have a look at what God is doing. God is at work in his church around this country. He's doing something special at the moment around the world. And in this, in this book, Roger kind of says that God's in the business of transformation. And first of all, he's in the business of spiritual transformation. That kind of overlaps with our whole meet God because we believe that God is involved in the spiritual transformation of our lives and wants to be involved in the spiritual transformation of our society. But he's also involved in the transformation of social, of, of society. So he's, you know, we, we see the kingdom of God. We, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, how the kingdom of God's values can, can impact other people's lives. And we also know that meeting God, meeting friends, reduces social isolation and mental health issues. We're trying to address those things. There is transformation happening in the spiritual, in the social, but actually he goes one step beyond. He says, putting all those things together, what do we see? We see cultural transformation. We see transformation of our culture, not just in pockets. Now, culture is about the atmosphere that we live in, that we're surrounded by, that we just are permeated by. And it's, often it changes so quickly, we have something like cultural whiplash, that we think one thing and then the cultural milieu has changed, and we think, oh, well, we're thinking that way, now it's around that way. And so many things can influence our culture. And we often talk about maybe the church has gone down this road of pitting the church against the world. Um, Adrian Plass, I'm sure you've read some of his books, um, and some of them he talks about some of his characters that he meets often talk about the natural and the spiritual. And you know that there are things, there's a sacred and secular divide, that there are godly things and there are ungodly things. And actually, you know, there's some truth in that. Biblically, there's some truth. In First Peter, it says that we as God's people are strangers here in this land, in this world. 
In 1 John chapter 2, it reminds us not to be in love with the standards of this world. And Jesus, in fact, in John 17 says, he was in his prayer for his people, in prayer for his followers, he said, that, you know, protect them, they are in the world, but we're reminded that we're not of the world. But even so, we are still in our culture, still in our world, still in society. So what have we got to do with that? And so often we've easily divided the world into sacred and secular. And it's been encouraged by the kind of increasing privatization of faith. You know, it's fine that you have faith, but keep it, keep it away from anything else. Keep it in church, keep it in your homes, but don't bring it outside because there's a sacred and secular divide. So it could be church on a Sunday, and then you're at work on a Monday through Friday. Maybe you've got coffee with friends on a Tuesday. Maybe you had a cell group on Wednesday. Maybe a sports club on Thursday. Drinks with friends on a Friday and shopping on Saturday. And then you're allowed back in church again for another bit of God. It's sacred, secular divide. And the thing is, that's a very Greek way of thinking about things, kind of uh, light and dark, black and white, plus and minus. It's very Greek, kind of flesh and spirit. And actually, if you've read any of the, the work by a guy called Rob Bell, he says that a Jesus way, which is a very thoroughly Jewish way, is not about the secular, sacred divide. He actually says this, everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Now, I mentioned this quote um, a couple of weeks ago. I think it's a fantastic quote. It's by Abraham Kuyper. And it says, There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus does not cry, This is mine. This is mine. Not one square inch of creation. You want biblical precedent. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then we look at the fact that our, our, our culture is damaged. Our society, our world is damaged. Even though Jesus claims it all, even though the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, we live in a damaged culture. And so Jesus came in order to redeem it and says in Colossians, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile the church, to reconcile good people. No, to reconcile to himself all things. Things in heaven or on earth. By making peace through the cross. Reconciling all things. Everything, everywhere. What we consider sacred and what we consider secular. Jesus has come and through the cross and his blood claims everything to restore, reclaim, renew and redeem. That's what Jesus comes to do. Amen? That's the gospel. Nothing is off limits to Christ, even though we are told by the world around us, this is off limits to Christ. Do you remember, um, was it Alistair, uh, the, the spin doctor, Alistair Campbell? What? Yeah, him as well. Alistair Campbell, when asked about kind of religion, he said, oh, we don't do religion. Unfortunately, God does politics. <laughs> no one told Alistair Campbell that. No matter if people say this is off limits, Jesus says, I'm sorry, it's not. It's not off limits to me. God is at work. But there is, in reality, a clash of cultures. We experience it all the time. There is a clash of cultures, the culture of the world, but also the culture of the kingdom. There is a clash. And in fact, we're going to be looking at that um, as the shared teaching series when the church is hopefully working together. Or do you know him series? Looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a clash of kingdoms, a clash 
of cultures. And we do indeed live in a multicultural environment. And I'm not using that as the kind of um, the catchphrase that's used, you know, because we're a multi-ethnic congregation or multi-ethnic society. We are a multicultural because we have lots of different cultures depending on our context. Because we are a divided country, aren't we? We are divided. I'm not talking about Brexit. I'm not talking about red or blue. I'm talking about the real division. Scone and scone. <laughs> we are a divided nation. Who's a scone? Who's a scone? Who will have either? Yeah, correct. <laughs> because different contexts have different cultures. You go to one place, it's a scone. You go to another place, it's a scone. You go to somewhere else, they call it a tea cake, and they're told they're wrong. Uh, different cultures have different Different contexts of different cultures, and we are in a mixture of many different contexts and therefore different cultures. If, if you've seen the TV series Friends, there's a brilliant episode where one of the characters, Chandler, um, who works in an, in an organization which nobody really knows what he does, and one time his friends go along to a works do for the first time ever. And there he is with his work colleagues, and his boss cracks a joke, and he cackles like a witch from like some kind of fairy tale. And his friends go, what was that? And he says, oh, that was my work laugh. <laughs> because in that context, he had a certain personality. In that, in that context, there was a certain culture. When the boss cracks a joke, you laugh and you make him think that you're laughing, but actually you're putting on a front. And sometimes that is appropriate. We have to have certain behaviors depending on the culture because the culture dictates what we do and it dictates how we do it. And the different contexts have different cultures. But one thing we need to realize, culture is changeable. Culture can be influenced. Culture can be changed. And there's a writer called Oz Hillman, who is a writer, an American writer, and he's the president of the Marketplace Leaders. And he says there are seven mountains of influence that influence our culture. And those seven mountains he describes as media, as entertainment and the arts, as government, as business, as family and relationships, as education and as religion. Those are the seven mountains that dictate our culture, influence our culture. And do you, do you recognize them? Do you recognize when a business does something, it has ramifications? Government, of course, but the media, entertainment and the arts. And maybe looking at some of these things, you kind of go, some of those areas are very ungodly areas. Some very dark areas. Let me take you back just a few moments ago. Rewind the tape. There is not one square inch of creation where Jesus does not say that is mine. And in every one of these areas, on the macro scale, we have people who are followers of Jesus in those situations. Here's just a few examples. In the area of media, we have Gemma Hunt, who's been seen on CBBS and, and pirate ships and everything like that. She's also the face of Alpha. She was prophesied. Uh, she talks about this in one of the Alpha videos. She was prophesied over saying, you're going to be a voice for God in the media. And that led her down that career path. We see all these other people. We see Simon Thomas. We see Martin Bashir. We see Mary Berry, the Blessed One. We see um, Carrie... <laughs> Carrie and David Grant, who I remember hearing a talk from them saying that they, they were aware, they're, they're vocal coaches and they work with some of the top names, but they were so aware that they are in a situation where they are aware they have a privileged position in the media where they can speak for God. 
Let me go on. Oh, I just pressed the wrong thing. To entertainment and the arts. And yes, the lovely Joan Murray is there because she is a prolific artist and designer. But the area of arts and design, we've got um, music, we've got Martin Joseph, we've got Stormzy. We've got Chris Pratt, who's an outspoken Christian in Hollywood. But we've also got... Um, Alison Becker, who's the goalkeeper for Liverpool. If you haven't seen the video of him baptizing his teammates, look it up. It's amazing. He's got these things, kind of cro- um, the, the cross equals the heart. And they've been so outspoken, and their boss, Jurgen Klopp, about their, their love of Jesus, and they're unashamed about it. We've got Milton Jones, we've got Charlie Mackesy, an amazing artist behind the prodigal son, and all those things. He did a few doodles. Um, on, on, and put them online on his Twitter feed based on a boy, a mole, a fox, and a, and a horse. Lots of people thought they were really good, and they said, can you bring out a book? He went, all right, if you think they should, uh, okay. I'll put them together, produce a book. It goes straight to the top of Waterstone's list because it speaks into a need where people feel a pain, and his art, through his love of God, speaks into that. We have Christians in politics, Andy Flanagan, beats the drum about Christians and politics. We need more of you, more of people of God in the corridors of government, both locally and nationally. A few years ago, we had um, Fiona Bruce, who's up in the screen there, MP for Congleton and Tory MP. Regardless of color or kind of political persuasion, she came and spoke at a cafe church. And at the end of it, it was before she got elected to Congleton, and we asked her, you know, what can we pray for you about? And she humbly said, will you pray that I don't succumb to the darkness that is in the corridors of Westminster, but instead that I will be an influence for it? I don't care if you vote Labour, vote Tory, vote Green, or monster-raving loony party. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are there in the name of Jesus. Tim Farron Regardless of what you think about some of his thoughts, he's tried to be a fair Christian in a vitriolic world. And they say, because you think one thing, you need to stop being the leader of a party. He was a great parliamentarian, still is, and a man of God. These are what we need in these situations. In the business world, we have Gary Grant, who runs the entertainer um, toy shop, won't open on a Sunday, invests in his, his um, employees, won't stock Halloween material. We have a guy who, had, who owned Richer Signs. He decided because of his faith, he wanted to give his money away, gave it to give his company to his employees. We've got Joe Malone, the fragrance brand person, Christian woman who speaks about her Christian faith. And then we've got the family. Now, of course, Family is family, but actually speaking at the upper levels, we've got care for the family, speaking at some fairly significantly high levels. We've got um, Nikki and Scylla Lee talking about marriage and parenting. We've got Krish Kandaya campaigning about home for good, about adopting children. That's in the family. Then we've got religion. We've got Justin Welby. How funny, Justin Welby was considered a wet fish and a safe pair of hands. And then he got made Archbishop of Canterbury, saw what Wonga was doing and said, I'm going to put you out of business and did. We're not saying that now. We've got Roger Sutton working to get the church unified together. We've got Deborah Green, who in Manchester has unified the, the, the churches in prayer and worked with um, the secular agencies and brought them together in redeeming our communities. Religion at that level. Education was really hard to find people on a national level who are obviously Christian. If you have any suggestions, please do. But we've got Peter Thomas locally. We've got NISCU. We've got Open the Book. We've got um, Leeds Christians in Education with Kate Botley doing something, trying to speak about God into education. These are the culture definers, and we need you to be in there. In every area of our society, culture is shaped and formed. We either conspire with it or we construct it. 
Someone will set the tone. So why not us? Alan Scott, who's pastor, um, leader of um, Vineyard Church in Anaheim, he was coast, um, the North Coast Vineyard leader in Northern Ireland, he writes this in Scattered Servants. The next great move of God is not going to be a movement in the church. It's going to be a movement of the church into society. Rewriting the story of education, rewriting the story of health, rewriting the story of businesses in our cities. That is the next move of God. So let's take it from the macro to the micro. From the big names and the celebrities to the local and the personal. Because we can pray your kingdom come. But we also need to be aware that we are also active participants in contributing to its fulfillment. We have a call to do that. Now of course we can say well that's that's a ministry, isn't it? That's for those who have been anointed and appointed. Those people who should be wearing dog collars but tend not to. <laughs> or maybe it's, oh, we're getting involved with, with a ministry. We're doing something. that we, we volunteer for something a couple of hours a week. So we're involved in ministry. Actually, it's something even bigger than that. We're called to make a difference where we are. Where we are every day of the week. We've been looking at, um, and has been recommended by a number of people over the years, and we've been waiting for the right time, the, the material from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, which is a big mouthful, but a great, great resource. And they particularly have this idea of your front line. And your front line, their definition of a front line, is the place or the time where we meet fairly regularly with people who don't know Jesus. That is your front line. It doesn't have to be the office, but it could be. It could be any of these places. It could be the supermarket, the playgroup, the office, the coffee shop. It could be the job center. It could be the school, the school playground. It could be a factory, a clinic, the park, the sports club, or the interest group. It could be any of those places. It could be the queue in Tesco. Where is your front line where you meet and engage with those who don't know Jesus? Because every one of us has a front line. Maybe more. But perhaps we have bought into a lie that says God is for Sundays, for midweek groups, and for a daily quiet time, and that's it. And I expose it as a lie because it is a lie because there's not one square inch of creation that Jesus does not say that is mine. They have a, a great picture, um, the um, LICC people, and they say that there's 6% of the UK population are in church at least once a month. That's about 1.5 million Christians in the UK gather together to worship together on Sunday mornings. But that is not where the majority of us spend the majority of our time. That could be a couple of hours on a Sunday, maybe a couple of hours midweek, maybe a few blocks of minutes during the week as well when you're having a quiet time. But actually, where do we spend those 100 plus hours? Are we doing it together in this little clump? We are gathered together for a few hours. What are we gathered for? We're gathered to go. We are gathered here in order to go. Gathered to be scattered. If you look at this, you see the, um, up in the top corner, you can see it. we're gathered together. What impact have we got? We are touching maybe half a dozen other gray circles. 
during the week, in those hundred hours you are at the office, you are at the factory, the school, the playground, the coffee shop, wherever, you are in contact with so many other people, you have an opportunity to influence culture by the way that you live. And notice this idea of scattering is so in tune with Jesus and the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower goes out with seeds and throws it everywhere, scatters it, just so there's a chance that some might grow. We are individually seeds that are being cast all over the place in all our different situations, our workplaces, our friendship places, our home bases, our leisure spaces. We've been cast out there as seeds. We are gathered in order to go. A ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships were made for. Two stories. We read one earlier about the man who was demon-possessed. Now, we're not going to go into the whole thing about pigs <laughs> rolling down hills, but there's one thing in that story that really intrigues me. At the very end, it says Jesus was getting into the boat, and the man who's had his life transformed runs up to him and says, can I come with you? And Jesus, being the nice guy that he is, says, no. <laughs> you can imagine. I mean, I don't know if I'd be that. I'd be go, all right then. <laughs> And walks away. Instead, Jesus says no, but he says go. He said, go to where you've come from. Go to your family and tell them what the Lord has done for you. So he doesn't mooch off in a bit of a grump. He goes off and tells his family. In fact, he doesn't stop there. He goes to 10 cities in the area and tells them everything that happened to him because of Jesus. He goes back to his everyday ordinary life with a story to tell of Jesus. And it says all the people were amazed. Because Jesus said no. He said go. Then there's a woman who was doing her busy chores. She was going to collect the water as she normally would do for her husband number six. Or actually, he's not really her husband. He's her kind of live-in boyfriend. Um, and she meets this guy who just seems to know everything about her. And he, he says he's the Messiah. And so he says, go and get your husband. And she goes, I'm your husband. It gets a bit awkward. But then she goes, leaves her water jar, and she goes and tells her family, her friends, about a man who I think is the Messiah. And so they all come back, and they think this is amazing. It transforms their society because they didn't stay where they were. They didn't stay in the boat. They didn't stay at the well. They went, and they, they were gathered together, and then they went. There's one thing that we need us to realize is that you... Every one of us, you guys, have a front line, an everyday, ordinary place or situation. You have a calling to be there. You have an, uh, an anointing and an appointing and a vocation to be where you are in God's provision. You see, the thing is, God loves the situation and context that you're in so much that he sent you to be with them. Think about that. God loves your context, your front line so much that he sent you to be there for him and for them. It's interesting that so many of the Bible heroes that we read about were actually everyday workers. We think of Joseph, who was actually initially a servant, um, but then he rose to be a prime minister of an entire government. We have about the Hebrew midwives, which is a brilliant story when Pharaoh says, right, everybody, kill all the Jewish, the Hebrew babies. And they go, right, we're not going to do that. So they save the babies, and then they go, these Hebrew women, they're just so quick at giving birth. They're done by the time we get there. As midwives, they protected, they did something God, Bezalel, First place that the Holy Spirit is poured out in someone for a task. It is a task which is a creative one. He is an artist, a designer for the building of the temple. He is doing his work, his business. Daniel 
he was administrator really high up for three consecutive emperors. Really seriously high-powered job. And then the other end of the scale, we have a servant girl who is working for an oppressive regime and a commander who's probably ransacked her village, who gets leprosy. And she says, actually, I know a bloke who can help you. And because of that step, Naaman gets healed and has a massive impact on the culture around him. We have Esther, who's a queen, seems to have a lot of power, but actually takes her life in her hands as queen in her position and saves her people. Nehemiah, who's like the security officer of the, of the governor of the, of the emperor, he, he, in his position, he, he garners the favor of the emperor and can go and rebuild the walls. We have Ezra, who essentially is a secretary. Okay, if he was around these days, maybe 20 years ago, he'd have a typewriter and a pencil behind his neck. Maybe more like an iPad today, perhaps. He was an administrator, doing administrative things. He was a scribe, but he served God in what he was doing. Boaz was a businessman, pure and simple, but he fell in love. And because of that, a couple of generations later, we've got a king called David, and a few more generations out, a guy called Jesus. We have Rahab. Any interpretation? She was a hostess. But yet she saved the lives of some spies in her profession, in her role. In the New Testament, we've got Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila who were all tent makers and actually lived as tent makers to make a living. We have Lydia, who is a merchant woman, really you know, quite significant thing for a woman to be. And we've got a guy called Erastus who had this amazing job title. He is the director of the city works. Man, either that's really exciting or really, really boring, but it sounds pretty influential, and he's mentioned in Paul's letters. These are people in ordinary, everyday situations following Jesus and making a kingdom difference in their workplace. Alan Scott, who I mentioned a few moments ago, has this phrase which is called the ordination of the ordinary. The ordination of the ordinary. We are kingdom carriers. Now, something... um, I confess to the 915 congregation, and I bring to you as well, um, I like a good fragrance. Not like a good aftershave. I can identify a perfume. Okay, I've just gone down in some people's estimations. That's fine. But I, you know, there's been an odd occasion where someone's coming in and go, Coco Chanel. And they go, how do you know that? Or, Oh, that's eternity for man, isn't it? What, you freak? Well, it's because I, I, I kind of quite like that. I can identify these things. But the thing is this. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal possession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. To spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. Now, those are kind of upper-end perfumes and aftershaves. You know the experience of someone coming in. I know from my background, there was a couple of ladies in my church back home in Northern Ireland. When, well, it, with a prevailing wind, you knew they were coming before they arrived because you could smell the perfume. And when they came in, there was just a cloud, like a nebula around them. Um, and sometimes it was pleasant, sometimes not so. Um, but they spread an aroma. What aroma are we spreading? Are we spreading the aroma of Jesus? When we go around anywhere, the fragrance of the knowledge of him? Wherever we are, wherever situation, we are meant to be bringers of the kingdom, of the fragrance of Jesus. But there is a clash of cultures. 
There's unethical business deals that we're pressured to try and take. We've got the pressure to alter results to make it look better. We've got the pressure of indulging in gossip or the ostracizing of that really annoying person in our situation. We have those clashes of cultures. As I said, we're going to be looking at that in a few weeks' time when we look at the Sermon on the Mount. But actually, at the very heart of this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16, Jesus gives us a massive calling. He tells us to be salt, and he tells us to be light. And we're really familiar with these phrases, aren't we? But do we realize how important salt and light were back then? Salt preserved the good. It was the refrigeration of the day. And so our job is to preserve what is the good, what is the godly, and stop the rot. Salt is also used for flavoring. I once went at a friend who worked for Yorkshire Dales Ice Cream and he took me on a tour and he was showing me the process of the ice cream and I saw the cream and I saw the, and I saw the amount of salt he put in. What are you doing with salt? He says, if you don't put the salt in, you won't get the flavor. Salt brings out the flavors. Eugene Peterson does it in the message. It draws out the God flavors of society. And the other thing is that salt was precious. It's what soldiers were often paid in as well as a coin. It's because it was a precious thing. It was like getting a refrigerator as your bonus. That's where we get the word salary from. Salt was precious because it brought a blessing to people. And what about light? One time we, I was in um, Paris and there's a beautiful, there's loads of churches, but there's one in particular, you walk past it and it just looks gray and murky. All the glass looks brown and stained and it's really revolting. And you go in and when you enter into this, in the inside and the sun shines and you realize all those light, all those panes of glass, when the light comes through, bathes the place in a technicolor wondrous, wonder for the eyes. That is only there when the light shines through it. We're called to be light, to draw out the light colors that are there, to draw out the God lights within situations, to guide, to direct, to expose what reality is, to dispel darkness. We're called to do that. And without it, we have life without flavor. We have life in the dark. We're told to let our light shine in the darkness, not for our credit, but for the glory of God. Colossians says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because what we do and how we do it reflects on our dad. Do you ever have that experience, any parents out there, that your kid does something and you just think, oh, my name's going to be mud in the playground because they've, you know, bit someone. (laughs) Okay, that was just me. Um... But you just think it reflects on me, how my kids get on and how we get on reflects on our dad. So if we are doing stuff that is not godly, it's not going to help the gospel. In fact, it's probably going to hinder it. Can you imagine if you're an ethical person who engages in gossip, who isn't fair, who is a bit harsh and a bit grumpy, and then you say, by the way, I'm a Christian, do you want to come to Alpha? You ain't going to get any takers. Whatever you do, do it knowing that we are reflecting something of the love of God. 1 Peter 2 and 12 says, live such good lives that even the pagans thank God for you. Isn't it funny when atheists say thank God? I think it's quite humorous. Live in such a way that the pagans are thankful to God for you because you are a blessing to them. Our daily tasks 
in an unbelieving world help or hinder the gospel and people's understanding of who God is. And as we gather together as church on a Sunday or an evening or whatever, our job is to encourage one another, to equip one another, to empower one another to go. And part of that is why later on this year we're going to be engaging with some of the LICC stuff about all the frontline things. And we're going to be doing it as a church And we're going to ask cell groups, small groups, house groups, and home groups, all of them to engage with it as well. Because it's that important about us on the front line. And this is just a bit of a trailer that we're going to be doing this together. Because we want to be effective witnesses on the front line that God has put us in. And these are some of the things. Modeling godly character and the fruits of the Spirit. Making good work. Doing our jobs well. Not for the credit or the paycheck, but because it's a witness to other people. Ministering grace and love. Going beyond the contract in order to show love and grace to people around us. Molding the culture whenever the culture could be vitriolic. Whenever it could be demeaning of a person. Molding and being different. Being a mouthpiece for truth and justice. Not engaging in the gossip or the blaming of someone when it wasn't their fault. And my friends, being ready to give a reason why you were different. We're going to be exploring those over the next little while, in, the next, in a few months. We all have a front line, and we're called to be salt, and we're called to be light. We're called to share the fragrance of Jesus wherever we go in our everyday front lines. Because you, every one of you, can make a kingdom difference in your scattered everyday. I'm just going to share two stories. First one is about a guy called Peter. And Peter, um, after living about 20-odd years in the same place, um, retired and moved to a town they didn't know very well. Um, He didn't obviously have a front line. He didn't know where to fit in. Um, He could preach, he could teach, he could counsel, but he said a brave prayer. He said, God, what do you want me to do? So Peter brought... So God brought a word to him. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. We had that shared last week. Ellis shared it the other week, sorry. Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city which I've called you to. So he said, God, how can I bless the city? And God said to him, pick up litter. That's not one you want to get, is it? (laughs) So he went to the council and asked him for a litter picking claw. And they gave it to him on, and I quote, permanent loan. (laughs) And so it came to pass that Peter went on his two-mile walk to and from the nature reserve close to his home. He'd pray and praise God for his world and pick up litter that marred it and put it in a plastic bag. And to the people that he walked past, he would say hello. Pretty soon people started to say hello back and little conversations began. And the months passed and people would ask, why do you do it? Because God loves the world that he made. Or they'd inquire, are you being paid? It's a bit of a thankless task, isn't it? You'll get to heaven for that. Gold dust. Well, actually, I'm hoping to get to heaven because of Jesus. (laughs) During Easter week, he goes to people and says hello and gives them a gift, sometimes like a little cross made from olive wood in Israel, saying this is where Jesus lived, a gift to remind us that Jesus died and rose again. Sometimes he's even invited people to an evangelistic meeting or something. And so Peter walks, he litter picks, and drivers who he doesn't know toot their horns and wave respect and gratitude. Then on one ordinary day like no other, a white van pulls up. The window rolls down and the man in the van, who of course had somewhere else to go, stops and says, thank you very much. Peter has modeled godly character and so many other things. And then there's a story of a gentleman called Michael. Now Michael is another gentleman who's retired 
And uh, Michael really likes coffee, by the way. That's what you need to know about Michael. He really likes coffee. And so he um, decides that, he, that he, he, he reads the Bible, he prays, and he asks God, where do you want me to be? And so he goes to his local coffee shop. And he's just there pretty regularly. <laughs> I'm going to go on until people get it. He goes there pretty regularly. In fact, he's, so, he's there so often, he's probably got shares in the place. Um, he gets to know the staff really, really well. Um, they start chatting to him. They have a bit of banter. He gets to know the regulars, and the regulars get to know him. And then he does a really brave thing. He gets his Bible out, and he starts reading his Bible in front of everybody. How ridiculous is that? And people come up, and they talk to him. And on two occasions, a few people, these two occasions, people have come up to him. Non-Christians have gone, oh, you're one of those Christian people. We're having a really difficult, dark spiritual time. Can you help us? You know it's Mick Dewhurst, don't you? <laughs> and what's happening now? There's an amazing photograph that Mick's put on Facebook. I'm sorry to make your head swell, my friend, but it's worth hearing it. Of morning prayer happening in being loved. Because one guy, who we happen to know who isn't in a book, decided on his front line he'd drink some coffee, read a Bible, and get to know people. Where is your front line? I'm sorry, bean love's been taken. <laughs> Where is your front line? Where are your front lines? And your front lines, what are, the, what are your front lines culture? Think about it, reflect upon it. Your workplace, your leisure space, your home base. What are the cultures that you're part of? Maybe you've not even thought about them. Maybe you need addressing. Maybe in a small way. Maybe just saying hello to someone in the queue at Tesco, not going to the shortest one and working out which one's going to be quickest, but going to the longest one and smiling at the checkout person and asking him, how's your day been? Where may you need to be salt? Where might you need to be light? Where might you need to bring the fragrance of Jesus? Because the challenge is, ask God. We sung this about opening our eyes to the wonders. Ask God to open your eyes because as we said at the very, very start, God is at work. I hope and pray you notice. Amen. I'm still going. <laughs> We're going to be singing in a few moments. And then we're having some space for people. We didn't do the one-minute wonders because we're kind of putting it here. Do you have a frontline 